invite you to open your Bibles to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7. After uh, this sermon, we're going to have three more sermons in 1 Samuel. That'll lead us right up into uh, the Easter season, and we'll do some sermons on the person and work of Jesus Christ out of the New Testament. And then after that, for the rest of the year, we'll, we'll, I'll actually go into a New Testament book, one of Paul's letters. I haven't decided which one yet, but that's, that's where we're going. So we have three more sermons out of 1 Samuel. Uh, and at the end of chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, it's a good natural break in the text, and I'll uh, talk more about that. Uh, today, we're diving into uh, this uh, chapter of 1 Samuel, and I need to uh, tell you uh, that right at the beginning here, the whole reason why I wanted to preach out of 1 Samuel is because of this chapter. Um, this is a chapter that I think is overlooked a lot of times and in the scriptures as one of the most important episodes uh, of all of the Old Testament, of God's salvation for his people. And it's such a vivid story and a vivid reminder to us about what God does for his people. What's been going on in 1 Samuel, uh, the book is named Samuel, and so you would expect that Samuel would be the main character all throughout here, that we would see him, but... If you look back, you don't have to, but you can just take my word for it. We haven't heard Samuel's name in three chapters. Samuel was growing up, and at about the age of 13, that's the last time we heard of him. And all of this other stuff was going, and we had this historical interlude where the Ark of the Covenant takes center stage, and we've seen a lot of things going on there, where the Ark goes into exile from God's people, and Israel is defeated by the Philistines. And then what happens... The Philistines are defeated by God. And then the ark returns. And last week we saw the ark returned to Israel. And yet the people of God had not learned yet what they needed to learn. And so we're going to pick up right here in the midst of the story. Um, It's easy to forget where we've been and what's been going on with Samuel. But today Samuel takes center stage again in the midst of this story. Uh, This is a repeated story over and over. Buddy's fond of pointing this out. Um, that the story of the Bible actually repeats itself over and over, and absolutely it does, and this is a repeated story. God saves his people, and for a time they enjoy the blessings of God's salvation, and yet after a while they forget, and God disciplines his people. And in the midst of that discipline, they they are defeated people, um, and they're relegated to uh, secondary status again, and there's all of these terrible things that happen. And then God once again saves his people. We're in the midst of that salvation again where God saves his people. Uh, Every time you read this in the Bible, and again, this is a repeated story that happens over and over and over in the Old Testament. Um, it's, It's our story as well. We forget so easily. And so some of these things pop up over and over and over. And we're going to ask the question, are God's people truly returning to God here today? Let me read this to you. I'm going to start at chapter 7, verse 2. And I'll read to the end of verse 14. Hear God's good and kind word this morning. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you're returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherahs from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. 
So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashereths, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding this word. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you again for this text, and we thank you for what it teaches us about repentance, about your wrath and your mercy, and about your accepting the penalty of another one for us. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased uh, to minister and to remind us of your grace and mercy through your Son, Jesus Christ, and maybe for some of us to hear it for the first time. We thank you for this word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to look at this uh, passage in three ways. It actually breaks down very nicely in three sections. First of all, we see the prayer of repentance. Secondly, we see the lamb of salvation. And thirdly, the stone of remembrance. So we see prayer, lamb, and a stone. Prayer, lamb, stone this morning. In verses 2 through 6, we start off by seeing the prayer of repentance. Look in verse 2 again. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is an interesting way to say that the people had repented. Um, It's a 20-year period. If you remember last week, the ark of the covenant was returned because God brought it back into the land. He brought it back to Beth Shemesh. The people of Beth Shemesh sacrificed to the Lord and they celebrated and yet... They had not learned about God's holiness, and they did some things inappropriately. Namely, they looked upon the Ark of the Covenant in ways that they were not supposed to, and God struck out against them. The people of Beth Shemesh were terrified, and they asked for the people of Kiriath-Jerim to take the Ark away from them. The people of Kiriath-Jerim took the Ark. They put this one man, Eleazar, in charge of the Ark, and this 20-year period passed. 20 years. Now, as the pastor, I have the opportunity and the pleasure of seeing God's people return to him and repent of their sin. And it's a pleasurable thing. 
Uh, I want you to understand what Samuel's going through as this is happening. Um, the people have returned. They've learned their lesson. And yet, how long does this repentance take? It's a 20-year time period of them returning to the Lord. It's an entire nation of people coming to hear from the Lord, or coming to hear the Lord, what he's been saying this entire time, and then them returning to the Lord. Uh, every week we pray for this. I pray for our country and I pray for the people to repent and for our elected officials and the appointed officials to return for the Lord. How long have we been praying for that? Well, here's a, a nation of God's people who should know better and they still take 20 years to return to the Lord. All through this period, Samuel has been the one bright spot in the otherwise very dark story of God's people not believing, not putting their faith in the Lord. And yet Samuel has put his faith in the Lord, and he's the one bright spot. And here is the good news for God's people. All through this, through this period, um, God was removing the bad leadership of Hophni and Phinehas, and Eli is out of the way. Um, the ark has returned, and that's good news, and the people are beginning to recover. And then in verse 3, after this 20-year period, we have a very short sermon from Samuel. Short sermons are good. We all like short sermons. Here is Samuel's very short sermon in verse 3. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you're returning to the Lord with all of your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherahs from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand, hands of the Philistines. Here's a very short sermon, one sentence. If you're returning, then here's what you need to do. Put away your foreign gods, direct your heart to the Lord, and God will deliver you from your enemies. Uh, in this short sermon, we have uh, a revelation. There's been this 20-year period. The people have felt terrible about their sins for 20 years. They felt really bad. Have you ever felt really bad about something that you've done? Um, this week, I, this isn't a sin necessarily, but I lost my keys, and I think I threw them in the trash, okay? I was emptying out the car, and we had trash in there, and I think it was dark, and I just threw my keys in the trash. Um, I felt terrible about that. It's not really a sin. It's just something silly that I did. But do you ever feel bad about that, and you feel really bad, and you look back on something you've done, and you go, ah. Oh, can't believe I did that. Well, feeling bad about something isn't repentance. Feeling bad about it isn't necessarily saying, I understand what I did and I, and I feel bad and I'm going to change. And that's what we see here in Samuel's very short sermon. He says, if you are repenting and not just feeling bad, what should you do? Put away your foreign gods. Put away your idols. And he mentions two idols in particular, the Asherahs and the Baals. The Asherahs and the Baals. These were local deities. Um, these were gods that were worshipped all through um, this, the land of Canaan. Um, there are some particular things about them. The Baals, the word Baal just means husband. And so it was the male god. The Asherahs were the female gods. And you see people, again, while they're feeling bad through this 20-year period, what are they doing? They say they're returning to the Lord, and yet the entire time they're saying, I'm returning to the Lord. And I'm still going to worship my idols of the Baals and the Asherahs. It's kind of like this. This story is kind of like this. A husband has been caught in an affair with another woman. The wife catches him. And he feels really bad about it. And he says, I'm not going to do this anymore. And then the woman 
listens to her husband, and she decides to forgive him. And yet, the husband continues to have a relationship with this other woman. That's the sort of thing that we're reading here. The people say, I've been caught in my sin. I understand who God is, and I'm going to worship him. And yet, they continue to cheat on God with their other idols. That's exactly what's happening here. And so Samuel says, if you're returning to the Lord, if you're truly repenting, then put away your idols. This is a word that we need to hear. We need to understand that our lives are filled with idols and our hearts go after other things other than God. And yet we'll gather on Sunday mornings and say we worship only God while our minds are going to things like our work and our families and all of this other stuff. And yet we say, no, we really only worship God. This word is for us. Do we worship Yahweh or do we worship the other things in our life or other idols? The Baals and the Asherahs were fertility gods. The people of Israel all through this 20-year period were involved in temple prostitution. And that's what we're being told here. And Samuel says, put these things away from you. And then he goes on from there. The people do return a good news. So the people of Israel put away their Baals and their Asherahs. And they served the Lord only. Then Samuel did this. Gather all all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And fasted that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. Um, Here are God's people gathering in confession of sin. That's why we do confession of sin here at this church. We confess our sin before God. We recognize that he's a good God who forgives sin. And then we're told that Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. What's happening there is that Samuel gathers the people and he says, If you're repenting, put away your idols and then I'm going to pray for you. And that's what this ceremony does. The people of Israel gather for a worship service at Mizpah. They confess their sins. They do this ceremony of pouring out, pouring out water. The pouring out of the water simply means they're pouring out their hearts before God. But it's also a picture of God pouring out his wrath. Well, here, who is getting the wrath of God? Well, the ground is. Someone else is taking God's wrath for them. And it's a way of showing their repentance to God. And Samuel prays for the people. We need to understand something about God and his forgiveness. We have a saying that goes for something like this. Forgive and forget. Forgive and forget. God doesn't merely forgive and forget, and this passage teaches us that. How does God forgive sin? How is it that our sin is taken from us? God doesn't merely forgive and forget. He forgives by pain, by someone else taking the penalty for us. When our sin is forgiven, it's because God has poured out his wrath. He doesn't merely forget that we did it. It's that someone else has taken our wrath for us. And how does God accept that payment here in, um, in, in this day? He does it because Samuel intercedes and prays for his people. Samuel stands in the middle of God and his people, and he says, Lord, I'm going to pray for them. Uh, all throughout the Old Testament, in, in a couple of places, Samuel's name is mentioned as one of the best prayers that there ever was. Um, in Jeremiah 15:1, he's mentioned um, on, alongside of Moses. And God says in Jeremiah 15, 1, that if um, his people have sinned against him, and he says, and if even Moses or Samuel prayed for them, I will not forgive their sins. Well, from Jeremiah we learn we need a better prayer than Moses or Samuel. 
But that highlights to us just how good it was, uh, Samuel was, at this praying. And it wasn't that he was so great. But it's that he pointed the people back to God and said, I'm going to stand in your place and I'm going to pray for you. And God accepts the prayer of Samuel. What does this teach us? It teaches us that we need someone better than us to pray for us. We can't merely stand before God for ourselves. We need an intercessor. What's the good news? The good news is that everywhere in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is the intercessor, the better Moses, the better Samuel, who prays for us. He stands in our place and he prays for us. Good news for us. So verses 2 through 6, we see the prayer of repentance. Then we get to 7 through 11. And I get really excited about talking about verses 7 through 11. Because there's some really interesting stuff. If there were a movie of this, it would be visually stunning on the screen. Because in verses 7 through 11, all of a sudden, now when the Philistines heard that the people gathered at Mizpah, why were they gathered? Were they gathered for war? No, they gathered for a worship service. What do you bring to a worship service? Well, what did you bring to your worship service here today? Well, some of you brought ties and khakis, okay? (laughs) You brought dress shoes. You didn't bring the instruments of war because you didn't come to battle. You came to worship. Well, here are God's people gathered at Mizpah for a really intense worship service. They are coming expecting and hoping for the mercy of God for them. And what do they get? They get the Philistines gathering. The Philistines, um, they're a nasty, terrible people. Um, if you, um, in Shakespeare's day, if you wanted to insult somebody um, 400 years ago, 500 years ago, you called them a Philistine. Okay? Philistines are terrible people. Um, and here we have the armies of the Philistines. Um, it's the kind of thing where you get this massive army gathering. Um, and, and in my mind, I picture men who are in their armor. Um, they haven't shaved, you know, they haven't bathed in probably a couple weeks, so they smell terrible. Um, you get a group of men together, and they, they do men things, and they're just this nasty, terrible group of people. And they've come for one purpose, to, to destroy God's people. And God's people are there for a worship service. And it's a wonderful scene, and yet we look at it and we say, well, we've gathered for a worship service, and what does God give us? He gives us our enemies. See how dramatic this is? This is wonderful storytelling. You have God's people there for worship service and the armies of the Philistines, the enemies of God's people, gathering, encircling them in order for one purpose, to kill them. It's like going out of the frying pan. They've been in the frying pan of God's wrath and now they're in the fire of facing their enemies unprepared. And so they realize here they have no hope. And I think that's exactly the point of this text. They've gathered and they cannot face this Philistine army. For 20 years they haven't had an army. The Philistines haven't attacked them. They probably thought they were secure and they were safe from the Philistines. But now the Philistines see their chance and they're going to attack and they're going to go after and they're going to kill and utterly destroy all of God's people gathered here at Mizpah. They have no hope in themselves and that's the point That's the point that we need to see from this. That it's not up to the Israelites to save themselves. And the good thing for them is their repentance is true and good because they understand it's not up to them. Verse 8. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands 
of the Philistines. They understand. They have no hope. They can't then all of a sudden gather the people together for a war and a battle. They have no weapons. They have no hope apart from one man praying for them. And then what happens? And I love this part of the story. Samuel, verse 9, very dramatic. Samuel is the military leader of God's people. He's also the spiritual leader. He's the highest king-like figure at this point. And you would expect maybe in a story for Samuel to then get some military strategy. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to divide and conquer. Some of you are going to leave. Some of you are going to stay and fight and hold them off. And maybe that way we can survive. You would expect that kind of strategy to come out of this. But that's not what Samuel does. This is very dramatic. So Samuel took a nursing lamb. Very clearly, a nursing lamb. What does that mean? It's a baby lamb. It's the cutest, most adorable little creature you've ever seen. And he takes a little lamb. Well, what is he going to do with a little lamb? How is this little lamb going to save God's people here? And then more dramatically, he walks in between the Israelites and the armies of the Philistines. And what does he do? Does he throw the lamb at the Philistines to distract him? No. Uh, He doesn't do that. He doesn't. What does he do? He takes the lamb. He cuts its throat. The blood of the lamb is spilled. Now put yourself in the, in the place of the Philistines at this point. All they see between them and God's people is a little lamb and a crazy man who is sacrificing the lamb. What do you think is going to happen? Well, you're encouraged to go and kill all the Israelites. Because the only thing standing between you and them is nothing but a little lamb. And yet, what happens when the lamb is sacrificed? In verse 10... As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them in confusion, and they were routed before Israel. What a great story here. All that's standing between God's people and his enemies is a little lamb that's been killed, and the enemies of God are destroyed They're killed. They're routed. Why? Because God fought for his people. When did he do it? When did God fight for his people? Was it before the lamb was slain or was it after? It was after. Why was it after? Because he accepted the sacrifice of the lamb instead of the death of his people. And when God saw the lamb, he accepted the atoning sacrifice of that lamb. And he says, these are my people. These are my children. I will fight for them. And he slaughters miraculously, his enemies, all the, the Philistine armies. Well, where's your hope this morning? Is your hope in your ability to fight your enemies? Is your hope in your ability to do really great and wonderful things for the Lord? Or are you like the Israelites this day and you realize you have no hope apart from a lamb being slaughtered for you? Flash forward to the New Testament, and who is Jesus Christ? The very beginning of John's gospel, actually, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This story points us not back to a little lamb that is in our place, but in the best lamb, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the cross, we see God accepting the sacrifice of his perfect son for us. So what does that mean for us? If we are in Jesus Christ, if we have put our faith in him, 
What does this mean for us? What is our standing with God? It means that we are right with God. And guess who fights for us? Yahweh the warrior who slaughters all of his enemies, who thunders and routs them. Where is your hope? Is your hope in coming to church? Is your hope in being good enough or smart enough and for enough people to like you? Is that your hope? If that is your hope, then it is no true hope. Your only hope is in the Lamb of God who is for you. Because this points us to his better sacrifice. The last part here, the stone of remembrance. Verses 12 through 14. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. The word Ebenezer just means stone of help. And then he reminds the people, up till now the Lord has helped us. Up till now, God's people, the Lord has helped us. Now that's to remind us of everything that he's done for us in the past. And it's also to point to the future. It's not as though your help in the past was the Lord. And now it's up to you to do something great for them. For him and to live up to it. It's not as though you're saved by the work of Jesus Christ. And then you remain saved by your work. It's a reminder to you that you were saved Always by God's grace from beginning to end. That it's not about your work. It's not about what you do. That you do not become the central part of the story after you are saved. But from beginning to end, it's about the Lord and his accomplishing salvation for us. Now why does he set up this stone? Why does Samuel do that? He does it because he knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows that we need to be reminded of God's grace constantly. Amy has um, put up pictures in our house. And I'm a typical man sometimes, and I don't like pictures. I don't don't really think about them. I don't care for them. Um, But in three places in our house, we have pictures of Cotton, Cotton, our foster child. Um, Every morning I wake up and I go to make coffee. And there's a collage picture of Cotton on our refrigerator. And every morning I'm reminded of him. Why do I need to be reminded? Because I'll forget. We had five great months with him. Good times. Amy knows me better than I know myself. She puts up these pictures to remind us of the good times that we had. Just like that, we need to be reminded even more so of the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ to us. We need an Ebenezer. We need a stone of remembrance. Guess what? You know what your stone is? Every single week, I say the same stuff over and over and over again. If you've paid attention, the story that I preach every week doesn't change. Why? Because we need to be reminded of the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ all the time. Samuel understands this better than we know ourselves. He knows that we'll forget. He knows that we will try to do things in our own strength and for ourselves, believing wrongly that we are good before God and in ourselves. And so he sets up the stone for God's people. And that's why you need to come to church, not because it makes you right before God, because you're reminded of why you can be right with God. And it's only because of the work of Jesus Christ for you. We need to be reminded of this. You cannot do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. I have to have pastors telling me this every week too. 
because I will very quickly and wrongly believe that it's about me. And then when I start preaching sermons when I believe it's about me, I'll tell you how you need to be better, how you can do it, how your hands are strong enough to do it, and we're reminded over and over in the Word that it's not about us. It's about Him. Well, have you forgotten about the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you forgotten that your life is about Him, that your salvation and your remaining in Him is a continual work of His on your behalf? Or have you even heard the good news at all that it's not about you, but it's about Him? We need to be reminded. We need to be reminded. So let me remind you today, you need an intercessor, guess what? Jesus Christ, God Himself, stands even now interceding in our behalf. You need a lamb to be sacrificed for you. And guess what? Jesus Christ is the lamb who was slain for us. And it's because of that that we are made right with God. And we need to remember it's about him. We need to be reminded constantly about his good work for us. We need to look to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for this text. Father, I thank you for the vivid reminder that it is. Great storytelling that the Lamb is between us and our enemies. Father, I thank you for thundering for us, for routing your enemies and ours. And mostly, Father, we thank you for making us right with you by the blood of the Lamb. I pray that you would help us as we leave this place in a few minutes to remind ourselves this week, to be reminded of it this week, it's about you and not about us. That as we celebrate love this week, we're reminded of your great love and your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his holy name. Amen.